Good morning. This is Chef Jackson Lamb with Gregory Bloom, your host at Food Chat. Food Chat is about reconnecting you to food, and it's on Wednesdays at 1230 here at 560 KLZ. Food Chat is about food production, including farming, ranching, processing, and basically all the things involved in getting food from the field to your plate. We interview farmers, ranchers, food processing companies, restaurant owners, and chefs. And you will learn a lot of things about food production and preparation that you didn't know. If you missed any of our last shows, we talked about pumpkins, melons, local food events this summer. We also talked to Dr. Temple Grandin from Colorado State University about her new book and the Colorado Proud Local Food Program. So if you want to check any of those out, please uh, go right to our website. In fact, to find those past editions, go to www.foodchat.us. All right? And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter at foodchat.us. You'll get notified of our newest shows, and we are giving away free gift certificates to local restaurants as well as free steaks from ranchfreshmeats.com each week with a random drawing of those who have signed up for the newsletter. So please go to www.foodchat.us and look for the newsletter sign up at the bottom of the home page. All right, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Greg Bloom. Welcome, Greg. Hey, thank you, Chef. Good to see you again. I'm excited to uh, have another episode of of food chat, uh, you know, the whole idea of this uh, radio show and podcast is to help people get reconnected to food because let's face it, how many people anymore are producing their own food? I mean, you might have a garden with some tomatoes in the back or some lettuce or some radishes, but you know, what percent of your food are you producing? So we know from ag statistics from the USDA that less than one and a half percent of Americans are involved in food production anymore. So that leaves 98.5%, the rest of us, especially us urbanites. And even though I grew up on a farm, I, I don't produce my own food anymore. I have some tomatoes. It's just a hassle, you know, and I, I don't have time. And, you know, if you have a garden, it's so funny. You grow corn, right? You grow corn, and it takes all summer to grow it, and then the bugs eat it, and then you get three or four uh, you know, pieces of corn, and it's delicious per stalk. And then you go to the King Superstore, and you can buy locally grown in Brighton, Colorado, Sakata Farm sweet corn or a latte sweet corn for like five years for a buck. And you're thinking, why bother? Why am I doing all this work? You know, because it's just, it's not even as good as what they do. That's absolutely right, Greg. But I'll tell you, um, I've spoken to farmers and uh, farmers that have limited land. Corn is the last thing they want to grow. You know, right. it, it, it's a, it's a one-time only crop. You know, at, in my garden at home, I'm doing all types of different heirloom tomatoes. Well, I'm making salad caprese at night. I've got fresh basil out of the garden, fresh tomatoes out of the garden, and this goes on three, four nights a week. So, you know, if people don't know where their food is coming from, grow some of your own. It's really not that difficult. You know, one of the best producing plants we have was a tomato plant I bought at Trader Joe's. Mm. All I did was bring it home and stick it in the dirt. And mm -hmm. it, it's producing 12 tomatoes a week. Well, that's plenty for me. So it works out very, very well. And I do like to grow my own tomatoes. And the, the reason why is because the tomatoes that you grow in your own backyard or your container, they taste better every time than the tomatoes you buy at a retail store. And I think that has to do 
with the uh, the way they're grown. You know, they're grown hydroponically. They grow faster. They just don't have the same flavor as that backyard tomato. So unlike the sweet corn, which is is every bit as good from Cicada Farms or Olathe, you know, all the sweet corn you get, or a lot of the other crops, tomatoes, you just can't get them that good. Yeah. Is it because they're fresher? Is it because they're a different variety? Do you have any ideas why? Well, I'll tell you, um, speaking, you know, from a, a perspective of growing tomatoes for 20 years, I constantly amend the soil. Ah. I, I, that is so important. And you're right. When we're buying these commercially grown tomatoes, they're grown hydroponically. You know, I really think that anything that's really good has to be in the dirt. You know, in, in, in food, in wine, we use a French word called terroir. And that is really it translates as to the flavor of the earth. Terroir. Terroir. I love that word. It's, I didn't, didn't know terroir. The terroir. I know. Terroir. Write that one down. I'm writing it down. T-E-R-R, and I think it's O-I-R. Could be I-O-R, but it's terroir. En français. Oh, nice. Hey, but another part of that also, um, uh, Greg, I want to share with everybody is, you know, I'm into composting at home, and I think, you know, a lot of people are into composting. In right. fact, some of the local cities have, hey, put your compost in this bin, we'll come pick it up. Well, I use all that at home, and I have an army of uh, red wiggler worms. Mm. So all of my food waste goes into my worm composting bin. Well, let me tell you this. Um, you know, that I've been working this late, my latest bin for about six months. I separated the worms from the bin, created a new bin for them, and then with the worm casings, I made worm tea. Worm tea. This is the, the no, no, not for human consumption. Oh, okay. I was, okay. <laughs> I was freaking out there. No, but this is probably some of the best fertilizer you could ever utilize. Oh, got it. And then I use this. This is totally a natural product, and I'm going to use this, and I'm going to sparingly go ahead and, you know, I'll water my uh, the, the flowers, the tomatoes, the, uh, the cucumbers. I've got tomatillas coming up. I've got jalapenos. I've got um, butternut squash um, as well as acorn squash. So the, the worm tea is a natural product that's really coming from compost. It's fantastic. You know, this has given me a good idea. I think we should do a whole episode of this show on soil and amending soil. Because there's a lot of people that do want to grow uh, a container garden or some herbs or some tomatoes or something. You know, you don't have to have a lot of room to do that anymore. And you can actually grow quite a lot of food in a small little container. It's amazing. But they do need to know a little bit about soil. You can't grow uh, nice vegetables in dirt. You can grow it in soil, but you, know, you need NPK, you know, the, the three elements of fertilizer. And so we could do a whole show on that. I think it would be interesting for people. So they're, they're successful with their little backyard garden. What do you sure. think? I think that's a great idea. I will tell you that when I started uh, vermiculture, that's what that science is called, my wife objected. She said, well, you know, she saw the movie Snakes on a Plane, and she immediately thought that the, the worms would be all over the house sure well we've got a we got a shed out in the back lot there and that's where i keep the worms and uh they don't escape they're very happy with where i put them yeah yeah that's a good point that's a good point <laughs> i can think of a, a horror movie you could do on that whole idea hey let's talk today though about um i want to talk to you about tipping and and ask you about tipping because you're kind of in the know on tipping so you know how much should you tip at a nice restaurant and what about a a casual restaurant and any more 
uh, speak to this uh, new concept where, you know, you stand in line for five or ten minutes and then you order your food at the counter and then you see the screen and they still want you to give a tip. So sure. l- let's talk a little bit about tipping and wh- what you know and what your thoughts are on, on tipping. Well, I think, Greg, that when we look in the rearview mirror, COVID changed a lot. And uh, right. all of a sudden we went from a, a vibrant uh, restaurant scene up and down the front range to almost a complete shutdown uh, two years ago. So all of a sudden, how do restaurants survive? Well, they were able to stay open if they provided curbside pickup. Right. And so as a result, some restaurants closed because they just couldn't hang in there. Right. Couldn't pay the bills. But as you're going down to Billy's Inn over on Lowell Boulevard and you're picking up uh, your order of, of Mexican food and the bill is $30, $30 and you're just, you pre-ordered it on the phone, you're picking it up. But, you know, you don't want to lose the people that work in your local restaurant. Right. And so all of a sudden I'm thinking, man, if, if uh, oh, I'm not going to tip them. They haven't done anything. Well, if enough people think that way they're going to close. So I always make sure that I'm trying to support our local restaurant employees. And ideally, if I go back to the same place again and again, I, I build up a reputation as a regular. And hopefully that leads to good food and good service and uh, um, a good experience every time I go out. You know, I'm also sympathetic to the market that we live in. So, you know, I'm a Colorado native, bought my first house in 91 for 70 something thousand dollars with a couple thousand dollars down you can't do that anymore now you have people most of the time most of the time there's exceptions but in food service serving you that are below 30 or below 40 most of the time and they're trying to live in this market they're trying to and so they're making 17 maybe 18 bucks an hour there you can't live on that in this market you know you can't even rent an apartment they're probably living with their folks or with a roommate or i don't know where they live but i feel for them in that you're you're they're back there working retail hours nights and weekends yep serving me food that i don't want to cook on the way i mean they're doing a great service to me so i don't mind giving them a tip even though they didn't serve me at my table yeah it's uh they work when we don't right nights weekends and holidays and i worked that that, those shifts for years greg but when you really think about it um there's another caveat a lot of people in the public are not aware of and that is the department of labor has a, a rule called the tip wage tax credit. And what that means is if you have an employee that is earning tips, you don't have to pay the minimum wage. You can pay them $3 below minimum wage because it's assumed they'll be making $3 an hour more in gratuities. Right. So as a result, um, you know, you quoted $17, uh, $18 an hour. I would imagine that probably most uh, waiters are earning about $14 an hour. People in the back of the house might be at $20, $22 an hour. But then there's the tip income. So that, so that does come in as well. But, you know, think about tip to ensure prompt service. Before COVID, we had a terrific, dynamic restaurant scene out there. But... In today's restaurant scene, we've lost a lot of our good servers, a lot of our good bartenders. They've all, they've all timed out. They, it's either that or they've switched over to work for somebody like Amazon with full benefits Monday through Friday. And so as a result, we're seeing a new generation in our favorite restaurants. And they might not know the wine list like the former team did. They might not know those classic cocktails like the old team did. But they'll learn them. They will. But we have to have the patience to bring them along as well.
And, and part of that patience is the encouragement through tipping. Right. I never knew that tip was an acronym. Is it really? To ensure prompt service. I had no idea. No there, one's ever explained that to me. There Makes you go. so much sense. To ensure prompt service. What if you don't get prompt service? Do you tip? Do you withhold the tip if you're dissatisfied with the service? I will, I'll put it another way. Years ago, I can recall being in a restaurant, and I felt within the first five minutes it wasn't going well. And I, <laughs> I'm cutting out here. So it wasn't going well. And I said to my wife, let's get out of here. She said, we can't leave. Well, nowadays, we leave. When, if we come in, we don't like the vibe, we vote with our feet and we leave. You mean before you order, you're just sitting there and you're not getting any attention? You know, if, I'm, if, if it says, please wait to be seated, and how long, how long is an acceptable wait, okay? Then you do get seated, all right? How long is an acceptable wait, okay? Here comes the person taking your drink order. And, you know, what, what, what do all of us do when we're in the restaurant? Well, we're looking at our, our dining partner. But we're looking around to see how busy the place is. We're trying to figure out, is that a server? Is that a manager? We're trying to identify the, the personnel. It's just part of those people things that we do. But, you know, if we see that we're not recognized immediately, if we see that it takes 10 minutes to get a draft beer, you know, we're just thinking, well, man, how long is it going to take to get, you know, the entree? You know, a visit to the bathroom, if the bathroom is trash, what does the kitchen look like? And so, as a result, you're right. There are times we'll go out and we will not have a good dining experience. Typically, if I'm uh, uh, working on uh, uh, all cylinders here, I'm right at the 25% mark. I'm uh, Usually, I'm good for a $50 tab if I'm going out. Not much more than that. But um, typically, the places that I frequent, you know, that's a $10 tip, $12 tip. It works out very well. But... 25 can go down to 20%, can go down to 15%. You know, one of the biggest uh, service failures I see is when a server starts out strong. But then, you know, you want to go to that 7 o'clock movie, and it's quarter to 7, and where, where the heck is my server? And all of a sudden, the server is nowhere to be found. And we've seen that happen. Well, all of a sudden, that's when we get down to the 10% mark. You know, that is when it's time to deliver the check that's the wrong time for a server not to be around we want to turn that table over we want to maximize the gratuity that we can get and so as we can move on to our next group of guests you know i was very sympathetic to the lack of um, good help at restaurants during COVID because they went through a mess and they lost some people and they had to close down and so I would go into restaurants, and even now that we're post-COVID, hopefully, you go back into restaurants. I was uh, in a very upscale uh, restaurant, uh, actually it was Cheesecake Factory at Park Meadows Mall last week with my wife, and it took us about 40 minutes to get our food. And the uh, waiter apologized, the manager came out and apologized. I think they dropped the food in the kitchen because I heard a big clash. Yeah. I think that was my plate on the floor. Now they never said that, but I didn't withhold the tip to the server because I didn't think that was his or her fault that my t took my food so long from the kitchen. I mean, I mean, it could have been they didn't put my check in and put the order in. But I have a question for you about tipping. When I tipped, um, when I received tips as a waiter, when I was waiting tables in college way back then, I got to keep all my own tips. Do wait staff get to keep their tips or do they pool the tips these days? 
It depends on the house, mm. okay? But but let's just go back to your premise, okay? You got to, uh, what kind of a place were you uh, a waiter in? Uh, it was like fast casual. So think of uh, upscale Denny's. Okay. Was there a bartender? No. Okay. Was there a busboy? Yes. Did you have to tip out the busboy? Yes. Okay. So when you if you go to a more full-service restaurant, I keep all my tips. Oh, but I got to tip out the bartender. I got to tip out the busboy. Right. Some houses, you have to tip out the hostess. Mm-hmm. Uh, some places where, okay, everybody kicks in two bucks uh, for the guys in, in the kitchen. Well, all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you started with 100 bucks in your pocket, and you're walking out with 80. Yeah, what about, what about do, you know, since the tip sometimes doesn't go in cash directly to the waitstaff's pocket, it goes on the credit card, so you can write it off, or just it's all in one ticket. Um, do you, do, does the restaurant sometimes keep part for the house, like 10% for the house? Do you think that happens? Um, that's illegal. Oh, and it is? Yeah, so, and to be honest with you, there have been lawsuits where... Uh, managers at Starbucks were taking part of the tip pool. We've all gone to Starbucks where, you know, they've got the, the bucket up there next to the register for tipping, you know, if you want to throw your, your loose change in there. But there was a lawsuit brought by the employees because the manager said, well, part of that is mine. Uh-huh. No, because the manager's already compensated by being a manager. So uh, that's that. Hey, you know, there's another thing I wanted to talk about sure. re- regarding uh, – curbside pickup and uber eats oh yes let's talk about let's talk about uber eats um so during the pandemic you know all of a sudden uber eats uh doordash uh a number of different startup companies just flourished how many times did you have food delivered to your house me personally yes not very many times i don't use that service often me too not once not ever so but when you think about how this flourished, there's a lot of people out there that don't cook, you know? And, right. you know, where does, your, where does your food come from? It comes from DoorDash or it comes from King Supers. You know, again, in food chat, we're trying to get back to the source of our foods, which is really great. But, you know, when we look at uh, uh, DoorDash and Uber Eats and all that, it really does show us how many people really don't understand food. And, you know, they have... That, you know, can't you make a burger on your own? You know, you know, I, I, I've talked to Uber drivers where they're delivering a family of six burgers, fries, Cokes. The bill's $75. You know, that's amazing when we're in an inflation environment. Right. The reason I don't use those services, and I do think they're okay services, but one thing is I want my food hot. If I'm going to order a chicken sandwich or anything, just anything, I want it to be hot. A pizza, whatever. You can you can get some pretty cold pizza delivered to your door. And pizza is one of those forgiving foods that you can reheat. It actually tastes good cold, but not a burger. Yeah. A burger doesn't taste good. The other thing I know about those services is that I have some restaurants that uh, use those services. And they take all the profit out of cooking the whole food. It costs them so much yeah. to utilize the service that it becomes a zero uh, you know, they don't make any money. So I ask them, well, why do you do it? And they say, well, because we need all the help we can get with sales. It helps us increase sales. Yeah. But we make zero money because they just took all the profit out of that order. So that's just one thing for people to consider. If they're trying to help the restaurant, go pick it up. Yeah, exactly. Or better yet, go and stay there. That's right. Yeah, in today's environment, you can go have a nice, you know, sit-down restaurant. Well, we're, we're, we're back at a point now where, you know, social distancing <laughs> is really not uh, – 
used anymore, and everybody's we're in patio season here, so it's a, it's a great time to get out and get out and enjoy your local restaurant. Well, we're talking about going out and eating, so part of eating out is um, also enjoying maybe a beer or a wine. So let's yeah. talk about wines. And what you know, you know a lot about wines because you teach class on wines. And there's been some um, there's been some news about wine in Colorado. So why don't you address that right now? Well, one of the unusual things that many people don't realize is Colorado has a very vibrant wine industry, mostly on the western slope. And it's growing, yeah. Okay. Number two, the vineyards in Colorado tend to be the highest in the world. Okay. The only vineyards that are have a higher altitude are those in Argentina. Wow. Okay, so as a result, most of our vineyards are starting at 4,900 feet. We're just below a mile high over in Grand Junction area. So as a result of that, um, we've got a different climate here. For instance, we don't grow uh, any Pinot Noir grapes because they're too sensitive, and as a result, they don't do well in our in mm. our atmosphere in our environment, but we uh, are very strong on the German style wines because they naturally come from a colder environment, uh, higher up in latitude. So Rieslings, Gewurztraminers, we're seeing that uh, being grown on the Western Slope. I will I would like to quote the uh, Denver Post. They had a great article last weekend on different varietals that a lot of the vineyards are experimenting with these are heirloom varietals i'm reading the article i teach a wine class and i'd never heard of these these uh these grapes really you know there's over uh, 800 grapes that are identified as being wine usable if you will so in any event what they're trying to do here in colorado is okay are there grapes out there that we're currently not using that are more tolerant to an early uh, an, uh, an early freeze as we go into the spring planting or that can uh, withstand a late frost. So the longer we can keep those grapes on the vine, the more flavor we're going to get out of them. So, you know, again, the Denver Post had a terrific article last Friday, I believe. And, you know, again, if our listeners can look that one up, Denver Post, uh, you know, things growing in Colorado beautiful uh, story about Palisade, where, which is really the center of where a lot of our wine production is here in Colorado. I visited a winery in a kind of a tourist center, and they grow the grapes, and then they bottle them, and they have their own brands, and this was near Durango, actually. And this was a farm that tried to make it with uh, agritourism. They, they were growing uh, uh, vegetables and, and, and lamb. They are growing sheep at, to sell it for meat, and they were growing vegetables, and they had like five, 10 acres in vegetables. But it could never pay the bills. You know, it was seasonal. So they switched over to uh, wine, and they have some great varietals. And the owner was telling us uh, that, you know, none of the varieties that people are used to, you know, the Chardonnay, the Cabernet, None of those can he produce in Colorado because of the weather yeah. and the cold. And so what he did was he contacted um, wineries in Minnesota because he figured if the grapes can survive in Minnesota, which has even harsher winters than Colorado, they could survive here. And then he also worked with Colorado State University because they have uh, done a lot of research and are doing current research in this field. Yes. To see what. So, but what do you think about consumers now having to go down the aisle or you're at a restaurant and you say, hey, can I get a Cabernet, a local Cabernet? And they're going to say, well, we don't really have a local Cabernet. We have a local something else. Do you think consumers will actually try that or do you think they're going to go back to their go to, I want the cab? 
Well, I think that uh, consumers, a lot of them, if, if we have a cab fan, we have a cab fan. And they're going to try cabs from all different regions. That's, that's my thought. Right. That's what I would do. Sure. So, um, but I think uh, as for the marketing of Colorado wines, yeah, if you're going to go into Argonaut or Applejack or uh, uh, Tipsies or whichever one that might be, Sure, they're going to have a Colorado section there. It might not be as big as the the California section or the uh, the Europe section, but there'll be a section in there. What was the question? Well, just about whether consumers are going to be acceptance of they're going to look at that wine label and go, I don't even know what that is. Yeah, that's a variety of grapes that I I don't even. Oh, I agree with you. you know. Well, then the other thing is, Greg, and it's a terrific question for everybody. What? causes you to choose the wine you choose now i do surveys with my students the first day of class and the biggest answer is because it has a pretty label mm. and so as a result <laughs> you know that's marketing to be honest with yes. you but you know if you're uh, let's just say that you've got a uh, macabillo there's a that's a wine varietal you never heard of say it again macabillo macabillo yeah it's from spain okay so as a result, what if we started growing Macabillo in uh, Colorado? Well, then that label would say Colorado-grown Macabillo. You know? Okay. Well, that that's a tough sell right there. It it comes down to the marketing of the label, to be honest with you. And then anything else on the label where maybe on the backside Macabillo is a red wine that has Spanish properties, it has a you know floral uh, accents of uh, blueberries and boysenberries. Something well, that sounds like it's going to take some effort on the part of if you're in an upscale restaurant that has a sommelier. Did I say it right? A sommelier. Sommelier. Yeah. Yes. If they have one of those, they're going to know. Yeah. About the local wine, but if they, you know, if it's you know not a restaurant that has one of those, it might just be the bartender or the server that has to tell you, you know. So. But think of the popularity of those restaurants that are doing farm to table. Right. And then all of a sudden, having a local Cabernet, having a local uh, Riesling, having a local Macabillo would be just the thing on the menu. The thing I think we should leave uh, listeners with as we kind of wrap up our show today is that if you're traveling on the western slope or down in Durango, Alamosa area, um, just, you know, search online for this. But there's some great local family-owned wineries that are growing the grapes Varieties you've never heard of. And they're making some great wine. And this isn't like $60 a bottle of wine. It's like $20, 25 It's some very reasonable prices for wine. Exactly right. And, uh, you know, uh, especially in the Palisade Montrose area, a lot of those old uh, stone fruit farms in Montrose are all being converted to vineyards, as you described earlier, just because uh, it's, a, it's a better cash crop. Yeah, and it makes more money. So, yeah. hey, as we wrap up the show, I just want to remind uh, the listeners that uh, currently – um, Hiracata uh, melons, cantaloupe specifically. Uh, we had Michael Hiracata on this show a few weeks ago and talking about uh, his family farm and the uh, melons that they grow. Well, those cantaloupes are all right now in stock at King Supers, Safeway, Walmart, Target, and the watermelons are coming next week. So support your local melon grower, the Hiracatas, and go in there and buy and even thank the local, the produce manager or the store manager for supporting a local family farm. Sounds great. And in closing, 
Hey, you got a big event next Thursday, don't you? Yeah, next Thursday is the Denver Burger Battle. Tickets are still available at the DenverBurgerBattle.com. It's a great event, a great way to see some of the best restaurants in the area serving up the best burgers they can come up with. So, hey, we're out of time today. Thanks for joining me for the show again, Chef Jackson. We'll see you next week. Okay, Greg, thank you. The views and opinions expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Crawford Broadcasting, the station, management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station.